Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for who you are, that you are the God of all creation who sent Jesus to be our sin for us. That he died to bear our to bear our sin, to pay the price that we should have paid. And Father, we ask that the weight of the glory of the crucifixion of Christ would be felt once again in our hearts today. That we would not see our sin as just mere mistakes, but that they are They're the cause of our Savior's pain. Father, help us to recognize the sin that is in our lives. Father, there are very easily actions and habits that we have formed that we, we don't think of as sin, and yet they are the very weight of the cross on our Savior. Help us to see our sin to confess it, to admit to you that we understand it as sin and to turn from it, to repent. Father, help us not be content to be where we are today spiritually. Help us to grow. Help us to to follow the instruction of your word by being in your word. Help us to... uh, Submit ourselves to the leading of your spirit as the word is proclaimed in our hearts today. Help us to not leave here the same. Father, grow us. So Father, we ask that you indeed would use your spirit in our lives as the word is opened this morning. That you would give us clarity in understanding your word. That you would give us the desire to live out what your word proclaims so clearly for us today. Father, help us to not simply acknowledge your word and and mentally agree with it, but help us to live it out this week. Help us to be the people who, uh, who act like your children. And Father, when we do fail, help us to immediately confess it and turn from it. Help us to... Uh, to follow your word in doing what we should do when we do sin. We know we're going to sin. We know that we're going to sin. We're not resigned to it, but we know that that's the reality because we are still on this side of glory. Lord, we do look forward to that one day when our bodies and souls will be complete. When our bodies and souls will be uh, away from the temptation to sin and even the, compa- the capacity to sin. Father, until that day, help us to be faithful. Help us to live for you faithfully each and every day. Help us to help others live faithfully. And fathers, for those we know who uh, are not yet believers, help us to be faithful in sharing the gospel with them yet again. So Father, meet with us. Meet with us in a special way this morning as we seek to hear from you out of the pages of Scripture. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I invite you to join me in the book of Philippians as we continue our series, The Mind of Christ. We have been going through the book of Philippians verse by verse, 
it is always our intention to, uh, to try to understand the text in a way that is true to what the author intended it to be understood as. Uh, so we, we put ourselves in the place of the Philippians to, to understand how he was speaking to them and then apply it to us today in our time, in our context. Uh, there are several sub-themes in the book of Philippians, that of fellowship, of joy, of humility, of having hope in hardship. But the overarching main theme of the book of Philippians is that we would have the mind of Christ. So we are intent on keeping the big idea of this book in front of us as we dig into the text each week. In the past couple passages, Paul has commended Timothy and then Epaphroditus to us as examples of men who have the mind of Christ. That was the end of chapter 2. Today we're starting chapter 3. I'm not sure. Did I tell you chapter 2? I meant chapter 3 if I said chapter 2 earlier. We're in Philippians chapter 3. Uh, both Timothy and Epaphroditus proved faithful in prioritizing the gospel, the good news that Jesus died for our sins so that we might have life in him, that Jesus is the one who gives us righteousness when we come to him in faith. They prioritized the gospel. They were faithful in being servants of the church. And specifically, both Timothy and Epaphroditus were faithful in serving Paul. And so he sets them as examples of how uh, men can demonstrate the mind of Christ. Now in chapter 3, Paul is set forward as an example. Now that, uh, lest we see that as a bit self-serving, that Paul would elevate himself as an example. Uh, remember, the word of God did not come because men chose to write these things. God moved Paul to write these words. And and and. In other words, like it, in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Paul wrote these words, Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Uh, I, I love that little, uh, those, those, that barrier there. Don't imitate me in everything I do. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Later on in Philippians, Philippians 3.17, he says, Join in imitating me. Pay careful attention to those who live according to the example you have in us. So uh, Paul setting himself as an example, again, that's God doing that for us through his writing here in Philippians, is not self-serving. Uh, it, it is exactly what God wanted him to write and he wants us to see. So today we're going to see that Paul gives us some direct commands from the Lord and then in subsequent verses is going to show us how he is living them out. So I invite you to follow along as we read today's text, Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Father, guide our time together in your word. Help us to hide these truths deep in our hearts so that we might live for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 1, finally. 
don't let that word fool you, we are not near the end of Philippians. Uh, In fact, uh, Philippians is four chapters. We are at the beginning of chapter three. We are, in essence, halfway through the book. Um, The definition of that word translated as finally means pertaining to the part of the whole which remains. So really, this transition word is not saying, well, we're almost done. It's saying, and now for the rest. It simply notes the subject change. And so with that, Uh, We are having a subject change from what we saw in chapter 2 as we get into chapter 3. Our big idea this morning is this. The Christian life requires a deliberate labor to establish and maintain joy. And I've asked them to put that on the screen for those of you who want to write it down because this one is wordy. The Christian life requires a deliberate labor to establish and maintain joy. In verse 1, we see the command to rejoice. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice is one of those key words of the book of Philippians. We've looked multiple times already at one of the other key words, fellowship, the, the acting and relating together as, as one body. Rejoice is also a recurring and weighty word in the book of Philippians. Last week, In the immediate context, uh, the church at Philippi was encouraged to receive Epaphroditus back with joy. And in spite of the fact that he's coming under less than stellar circumstances, he had been very sick and had to go home. He was unable to actually continue doing what he had been sent to Paul to do. And and so in the context of speaking of joy, he just gives another flat-out, broad-range command, rejoice in the Lord. I don't normally go into word studies with, with us as a congregation. I, I do the word studies digging deep into, uh, into the, the Greek definitions of, of what the original text says. I don't normally bring them out in the sermon unless it's necessary, especially with simple words. I remember being at a conference and the preacher was throwing every Greek word he could at us and he came to the word let, and he said, the Greek word for this means let, and I'm pretty sure that I audibly said, well, duh, because that's why they translated it let. Uh, The word rejoice ought to be one of those words that's pretty obvious what it means, but I think that we have inadvertently developed some sort of spiritualized definition that actually denies the actual meaning of the word rejoice, uh, denies the, the dictionary meaning, but also the contextual meaning. And here's how that definition gets skewed. Uh, in Romans chapter 5, verses 3 and 4, we read this. Romans chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And this is one of of many passages we could turn to where the Word of God tells us to find joy even though we are suffering. So we take verses like this to mean that, yes, life is hard, and even though we don't have a sense of happiness, we don't have a sense of gladness, we are to have joy as though somehow God wants us to think of joy as somehow being divorced from the emotion of it. But here's the, the actual 
definition of the word rejoice from uh, my favorite Greek to English lexicon because it's the original Greek that we're interested in, not the English. Here's the definition. To enjoy a state of happiness and well-being. To rejoice or be glad. That is the definition of the Greek word. And that's how we ought to understand the English word rejoice. In other words, I believe scripture teaches that our satisfaction in Jesus will, as we grow and mature, develop real, meaningful gladness as we go through pain. Honest, emotional happiness, even in the context of this sin-cursed, broken world. The command here to rejoice is not simply that of a mental assent, a mental agreement that, yes, I'm going to be happy. It's not divorced from the feeling of happiness and that of contentment. Have earnest happiness and satisfaction even under the cloud of life. The cloud in the immediate context is that of Epaphroditus' illness and his return to Philippi. We can only have this type of happiness because we rejoice in the Lord. Our happiness and well-being is found in knowing Jesus as our Savior. Because of that, everything around us can fall apart and we can still rejoice. Rejoicing and having the confidence that our sins are removed by his blood and replaced with his righteousness. Remember what Jesus told his disciples in the book of Matthew? He says that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, the Pharisees, those who were known for keeping the law, memorizing the law and keeping it to the letter, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Well, how could we possibly be better than the best? Well, that only comes from the righteousness of Jesus being placed on us. So we rejoice in our salvation. We rejoice because we are right with God. And then we rightly expect to receive all the promises of God that he has made to us. Including the removal of all the pains of this world. Paul knows that he is being repetitive with the word rejoice, and he doesn't care. He says, to write the same thing to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. Repetition is no issue for Paul, and it should not be for us either, because first of all, repetition helps. It helps us to repeat the reasons we are joyful in the Lord, some of them that I've just repeated for you because we have confidence and hope in our Savior, Jesus Christ. We need repetition. This past Wednesday night, one of my Awana students was looking at an upcoming memory verse and declared, we, we memorized this verse last year. So, yes, you probably did. And that's perfectly okay. It's not like the Awana publishers ran out of verses and just had to repeat some. No, it's because... There are certain concepts that require more repetition so that we get it 
Paul tells the Philippians to rejoice multiple times in the book of Philippians. Back in chapter 1, verse 18, as everyone, not everyone, as many were against Paul, he writes these words, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. There were those who were preaching Christ out of envy and strife, and he said, it doesn't matter to me, I rejoice. Philippians 2, 17 and 18. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering, that's his poetic way of saying, even if I'm going to be killed for this, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Even if serving Christ means my death. And it was a real possibility, a real question in Paul's mind as he was imprisoned for preaching Christ. He says, even if it means my death, rejoice. Then last week, the church was implored to rejoice at the return of Epaphroditus. And keep in mind, we're going to see rejoice a couple more times as we go through the book of Philippians. The point is repetition is not a problem for Paul, and it should not be a problem for us either. When it comes to rehearsing the things of Christ, when it comes to remembering the word of Christ, when it comes to being told over and over again, rejoice. Repetition is not a problem because repetition helps us, and secondly, repetition protects us. Yeah, in intense, I know. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. To put it another way, there is a danger for the believer when the truth of Scripture is not being repeated. When we are not being reminded over and over again to put our faith and hope and trust, to put our joy in Jesus Christ, there is a real danger to us. The Philippians are in danger of succumbing to the evil of the age if they should neglect the truth of their salvation. The repetition and recitation of Scripture is a necessary guard for the believer, for there are dangers. And those dangers are what we see in verse 2. So in verse 1, rejoice. Verse 2, beware. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. The Christian life requires a deliberate labor to establish and maintain joy. Therefore, we must be warned of the dangers faced by the believer. If we are going to establish and maintain joy, we must know of the dangers we face. There are three warnings in this verse, verse 2. Beware of dogs. Look out for dogs. Being called a dog has never been a compliment, I don't think, in any era. It was certainly not true in Paul's day. The Jews considered Gentiles to be dogs, for they were unclean in how they acted. They were unclean in the way they handled themselves. They were unclean in their souls. They did not worship the one true God. And in this passage, Paul's actually flipping that convention on its head. He's not calling Gentiles dogs. He's actually referring to Jews as dogs. Those who would cling to Judaism and reject the Messiah, would reject the gospel, or would try to add Judaism to the gospel. 
Specifically, these dogs are the Judaizers. They would add the rituals of Judaism to the gospel. They would want to force Judaic traditions on the early church. And to a point, they were successful. That's why they had to be warned against here. It's why the entire book of Galatians was written. There's a refutation of the Judaizers in the church, those who would try to require Judaism for people to accept the gospel. The first church council ever held was held in Jerusalem around A.D. 50, as in the year 50, and it was primarily called to recognize that Gentile believers were just as much a part of the church as Jewish believers because the Holy Spirit had clearly come on the Gentiles as well. And so furthermore, the Gentiles did not need to become Jews via circumcision in order to become a member of the church. Beware of dogs. They bring false teaching. Their teaching often sounds good. Their teaching often kind of makes sense and sounds right. But stand guard. Beware of dogs. Beware of evildoers. The Jews were oriented to salvation by the good works of the law. They had the law and the best. I, I mentioned the Pharisees earlier. The best of the Jews would memorize the law and try their hardest to keep every little bit of it. They would have great pride in their good lives. But what they thought of as good works, God calls evil. Why? Because salvation doesn't come through good works. It never did. It was always by trusting in the one who gave them the law in the Old Testament and trusting in that promised Messiah that he gave in the Old Testament. For us, we know who that is. That's Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul is describing their character in calling them evildoers, not their actions, because their actions were actually good. We live in a town with lots of good-acting people, many of whom have condemned souls. I'm not saying they're condemned because they don't attend grace. There are plenty of believers in Jesus Christ whom I fully expect to be in eternity that live in our town that don't go to our church. You can be saved and not go to Grace Baptist Church. I'm saying they're condemned that they are workers of evil because they are trusting in their own righteousness rather than trusting in Jesus. On the surface, they look like good people. You would want them to be your neighbor. But they are condemned. They are evildoers. These unbelievers who live good lives are far more dangerous to the church than those who are obvious workers of evil. Let me say that again unsaved individuals who are otherwise good people, that you would look at them and say, oh, they're good citizens, they're good neighbors, they're good people. They are more dangerous to the church than someone who's blatantly evil because we can be swayed by their good deeds when their heart is set against God. Beware of dogs, beware of evildoers. Thirdly, beware of mutilators. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. If it wasn't clear that Paul is talking about the Judaizers, then here and in the next verse, it becomes 
ultimately clear. He's talking about those who would require circumcision, those who would desire others to literally cut their flesh in order to be part of the church. Christian life requires deliberate labor to establish and maintain joy. Therefore, we must be warned of the dangers faced by the believer. We rejoice, verse 1, beware, verse 2, verse 3, remember. Remember who we are in Christ. Verse 3, for we are the circumcision. He ended verse 2 talking about those who would require circumcision of those who would join the church. He flips it in reverse order in verse 3, for we are the circumcision. We are the true circumcision, the true chosen ones, the true children of God who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Our true identity as being God's child. That's what circumcision was. It was a mark to show that indeed these men were God's people. The inverse of the mutilators of verse 2 is the first part of verse 3. We are the true circumcisions. The Judaizers would demand a believing Gentile men to literally cut themselves. Now, you and I aren't going to face uh, Jewish people demanding Jewish customs from us as a church. Okay? But we do indeed have those who would pressure us into believing that we are not truly God's children if we don't do certain things. For instance, there are those who put a premium on baptism or communion, that if you do not observe the ordinances as we say that you must, then you are not a child of God. There are churches, there are others out there that would look at us as Baptists and say, you guys are doing it wrong and therefore are lost. There'd be a pressure to change. Others would declare that evidence of the receipt of the Holy Spirit by speaking in other tongues as the Holy Spirit gives utterance is a necessary sign of your salvation. There are those who would believe that if you don't speak in tongues, you're not saved. I would pressure you to believe that there's something that needs to be added to your faith in order to be saved. These are just two examples of ways other so-called Christians might get you to doubt your salvation or, or to forget what the true gospel is. The true gospel is salvation by grace, the gift of God through faith. Not through your actions. Through your faith in Jesus Christ. Paul reminds the Philippine believers that they are the true circumcision. They are the true children of God set apart to himself, not only in this life, but for the rest of eternity. Secondly, in verse 3, you are true worshipers. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God. The inverse of the evildoers of verse 2 are the true worshipers of God. We worship God not by ritual, but by the Spirit of God. Of God. We worship because we have the Spirit of God indwelling us, not, not evidenced by, by speaking in tongues or by being able to supernaturally heal someone, but evidenced by a new life 
a new intent, evidenced by actions, evidenced by a desire to know God more, a desire to be with God's people, a desire to live a godly life. All these, these other disciplines that, that come as a result of the new life are because of the new life. I guess I said that twice. Sorry for the redundancy. Jesus died not to make you feel good, but to make you new. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. John 3.3 Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, Another term for that new creation. He cannot see the kingdom of God. We believers in Christ are the true new life. The inverse of the, the dogs of verse 2, we are the ones who in verse 3 glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Paul continues to emphasize salvation by faith alone by continuing to highlight the incapacity of works to save. We put no confidence in the flesh. Why? Because our flesh fails. What we do in this body, trying to live a good life, will never make us good. Will never make us good enough to be Christ's child, to be God's child. We glory in Christ Jesus. We have our faith and hope in him. The believer, the true believer, is confident in Christ and his sacrifice, not in the works that we can do in the flesh. We are confident in our status before God that is awarded to us by faith because of Jesus, not because of ceremony or ritual done in our body. Christian life requires a deliberate labor to establish and to maintain joy. New believers are great to be around, aren't they? Because that joy bubbles through. And yet something happens as we are supposed to be growing in Christ. Perhaps we've stagnated. Perhaps we've hit a plateau of some sort and our joy wanes. We are in danger when that happens. We need to remember who we are in Christ. We are the true ones set apart for his goodness. We are the true worshipers. We are the true new life. Are you trusting in Jesus? I don't mean just for your eternity. That's important. Are you trusting in Jesus for your here and now? What is your outlook? Is your outlook, of, is, is your outlook joy? Even if the bank account says maybe it shouldn't be or the stock market says it shouldn't be or the weather forecast or whatever it is coming up. Is your outlook joy? Are you looking out for threats to your joy? And to your faith. 
we believe and proclaim diligently that the word of God has what we need to be able to obey the word of God. So if you're struggling for your joy, dig deeper into the scripture. If you need help to be guided where to go in scripture, hit me up. Can I say that? Am I too old for that? I'm too old. Okay, thanks. I'd be happy to show you how the scripture can help you in the here and now to live a life of joy. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that your word is true. We thank you that the promises in it are true and that the commands in it are not so hard that we cannot do them with your help. So, Father, help us to rejoice in the Lord. Help us to truly be content and satisfied and even happy in our deportment and in our feeling as we go through this life. Father, if we are truly joyful in you and the storms of life come, the world is going to notice and they will, they will wonder. They may even ask. And we can share with them why we have joy. It's not because life is always easy. In fact, the warnings that we receive even in these uh, three verses of scripture today are, are real warnings, real dangers, and we face them all the time. But despite those dangers and despite uh, the, the darkness of sin that surrounds us, we can have joy. Help us to fight for it. Help us to cling to the promises of the word when, when our doubts set in. And help us to be more like our Savior. We thank you and praise you for how you will use this word in our lives this week in Jesus' name.